Cable News In-Depth, where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community. You are listening to Cable News In-Depth. I'm Althea Billings. Oregon lawmakers are back in Salem for the next five weeks for the short legislative session. Their priorities include housing, homelessness, and Measure 110, Oregon's drug decriminalization measure. It was passed by voters in 2020, and it decriminalizes the possession of small amounts of drugs and redirects cannabis tax dollars to fund addiction recovery services, something that has been underinvested in in Oregon historically. Lawmakers announced plans to recriminalize the possession of small amounts of drugs after major public outcry about public drug use that is tied to the dual crisis of housing and homelessness. But the question of what impact did Measure 110 have on Oregon is not necessarily a matter of personal opinion. It's a question of scientific inquiry, one that many researchers have taken up in the past four years. On January 22nd, RTI International hosted a research symposium in Salem, bringing together researchers from different disciplines who've examined Measure 110 and the funding it's brought to treatment programs. Morgan Godwin of the Alcohol Drug Policy Commission of Oregon and Northeastern University was one of those researchers. Her presentation was called Oregonians' Experience of Overdose, How Risk is Shaped by Personal Characteristics, External Factors, and Naloxone. She and other researchers described a survey they conducted of 468 people who use drugs across eight counties in Oregon. The findings have important implications for how lawmakers might change Measure 110. I caught up with Morgan to learn more. So in 2023, you worked on a really remarkable quantitative and qualitative survey of people who use drugs in Oregon. You found some really interesting stuff I want us to talk about. What did this study uncover about which drugs folks are using the most? Meth, hands down, is the most used drug in Oregon. It was shocking to me. Um, And then fentanyl's pretty common, too. About, so 92, 93% of people had used meth in the last 30 days. And what's the number for fentanyl? Do you have it pulled up? I do. It's 53. 53% had used fentanyl in the last 30 days, um, you know, which is still a lot. But woof, do a lot of people use meth. <laughs> and then, you know, we broke it down to the frequency of use, too, in various ways. And, you know, a solid... Half of all the people who use fentanyl daily also use methamphetamine daily. So we also saw a lot of what's called polysubstance use, so co-use of meth and fentanyl. And that's something we already suspected because in the toxicology reports in drug overdose deaths, it's increasingly common that people have both fentanyl and methamphetamine in their system. So from the study, what were some characteristics that you found to be more common among fentanyl or meth users? So meth users tended to be slightly older than fentanyl users, and they were much, much more likely to report having a disability. Uh, And we didn't define that. That It was just a self-reported question, do you have a disability? Fentanyl users were more likely to be homeless and were on average seven years younger than meth users. But then when it comes to some other questions on the survey, like how many overdoses have you witnessed in the last 12 months? 
the number with fentanyl users was off the charts at an at a median of eight witnessed overdoses um, in the past 30 days, and meth users had a median of four witnessed opioid overdoses in the last 30 days. Yeah, the overdose data in particular is is very interesting, both of how many folks might have experienced based on which drug they used and how mm-hmm. many they may have witnessed based on which which drug they used the most. Yeah, of all the fentanyl users we talked to, you know, they'd averaged three non-fatal overdoses in their lifetime. That's a lot. They're lucky to be alive, uh, but they were able to be found and revived. So that's another thing that we saw asking those overdose questions was that in the community, uh, people are administering naloxone very frequently and are reversing non-fatal overdoses within their community. Yeah, naloxone or Narcan is, uh, I, I was definitely surprised by, by the numbers that were that were found in this, about how often folks are, are using it. Uh, you found that 71% of participants had at least one dose of naloxone. Mm-hmm. Which is, that's actually quite high. That is impressively high. Oregon was a fairly early adopter of harm reduction interventions. And when we look at that statistic, it indicates that we're doing a decent job getting naloxone into the hands of people who actually need it, who will actually use it. You know, there's very different and sometimes conflicting ideas on how naloxone should be distributed. But when we looked into that data, you know, if fentanyl over fentanyl users are witnessing eight overdoses a year on average, they are very clearly the priority population. And another interesting thing that came out there was fentanyl users were much, much more likely to administer naloxone than meth users. So meth users are seeing about half the number of overdoses that fentanyl users are, but they're administering naloxone like a a tenth of the time. Meth users, it was uh, 6% of which overdoses they witnessed, they administered naloxone. And for fentanyl users, it was 60%. They personally administered naloxone. That's not even counting if someone else during the overdose administered naloxone. What was the attitude that folks had towards the idea of calling paramedics or calling 911 uh, witnessing an overdose? We heard pretty broad trepidation when it comes to calling 911, uh, especially people on, and this came up in the qualitative. So we did the quantitative interview with 468 people and then also did a deep dive, open-ended qualitative interview with 32 of those folks. And especially people on community supervision, uh, probation or post-prison supervision, they experienced or they expressed extreme trepidation when it comes to calling 911. And then there was also this notion that, um, and we heard this in the rural areas, that if you were to rely on first responders, they can sometimes take 15, 20 minutes to respond. And if they had waited that long, 
that the person probably would have died. And so they're able to administer naloxone essentially immediately and get that person returning to breathing uh, very quickly. And then the other thing we heard was, especially fentanyl users, know how to respond to overdoses. And they feel comfortable doing that themselves, that they have Narcan, that Narcan works, and so that's something they're able to manage amongst themselves. But if for whatever reason they cannot, they don't have naloxone, the person's not waking up, they will call 911. I mean, we did hear plenty of people uh, that did call 911, but it's sort of like a option of last resort. Well, the survey also looked at overdose risk factors, things that make it more likely that someone will overdose. Can you talk me through some of those? Yeah, the most salient finding there was if the person reported being incarcerated in the past 12 months, gone to jail at all for any length of time, they were twice as likely to report having overdosed. And then that relationship was dose dependent. So the more episodes of incarceration they experienced, the more likely they were to have overdosed. And that's something that has been shown in in peer-reviewed studies across the country for quite a long time now. Um, And it was even shown in a study out of the Oregon prison system. But this is the first time we have hard data here in Oregon that shows if you go to jail, not prison, not you were gone for two years, If you go to jail, even just for two or three nights, that is doubling your risk of drug overdose. That's that's pretty significant considering what Oregon lawmakers are considering doing, which would be recriminalizing the possession of things like fentanyl. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we know that incarceration doubles the risk of overdose. So therefore, if, if we are considering returning people to jail for their substance use, that is an overdose risk factor, full stop. And that's borne out by not just our survey, but data all across the country. So if anyone is to contest that, it's fairly disingenuous. Well, the survey in the qualitative section, I believe, and correct me on that if I'm wrong, uh, but also looked at the policing of people using drugs which is particularly important, right, as the Oregon legislature is considering recriminalizing possession of drugs. And one of the express goals of Measure 110 was to reduce interactions with police. From the survey, is that something that's happening for folks? So the population we spoke to, which were predominantly homeless, people using drugs, they're still having a phenomenal amount of police contact. About two-thirds of that population had been stopped by the police in the last 12 months. Um, More than half had been searched by the police. I think it was 43% had had their uh, drugs confiscated by the police in the past year. And that's under decriminalization. Um, So this notion that under decriminalization, uh, police are having no contact with these people and it's just running amok, that does not seem to be borne out by the data because there's many other reasons that police are coming into contact with people. In the qualitative interviews, most often people reported feeling 
persecuted or experiencing harassment by the police because they were homeless. Uh, so we heard things about like, oh, I look unshowered and I have a backpack and that makes me a target. Right. Well, housing and homelessness are issues that are tied up in this. They get tied up in this. And there's a prevalent idea out there right now that people may have even moved to Oregon in order to do drugs under our decriminalized yeah. system. <laughs> what is your data set? What did you find about that kind of claim? <laughs> um, that is probably one of our strongest findings that debunks the common narrative. Uh, the average length of time a survey respondent had lived in Oregon, 21 years. The average age was 40. So that means, you know, on average, people have lived in Oregon more than half of their life and more than 20 years. Uh, I believe it was something like 75, 72% had lived uh, in the region where we found them for more than 10 years. And uh, only 8% of people that we talked to moved here since February 1st, 2021. 8%. So 92% of everyone we talked to, drug users experiencing homelessness, uh, were essentially long-time Oregon. This is kind of a related aspect, but I recall there also being a pretty significant portion had started doing drugs far before Measure 110 was enacted. Yeah, that's right. That's another. <laughs> that one's even better. 98.5% of everyone we spoke to began using drugs prior to February 1st, 2021. The average length of time that people had been using. 21 years, so more than two decades. And again, their average age was 40. Um, you know, there's going to be outliers on both ends. But if we think about what that average looks like, it means they started using drugs about 19, and they're now 40 years old. Well, there's another claim floating around that I'd love to get your input on from a scientific perspective, right? People have claimed that fentanyl came to Oregon as a result of Measure 110, is that something that is supported by the available data? That is not supported by the data. Uh, fentanyl came to the West Coast several years after it appeared on the East Coast. Uh, we actually had quite a bit of time to prepare for the arrival of fentanyl because drug policy experts were calling it an inevitability. It's fully synthetic. It doesn't require poppies. It allows for vertical integration. Um, and the market was moving towards fentanyl. Uh, but the West Coast here, the I-5 corridor, was effectively black tar heroin's last stand. Uh, but then with the COVID-19 related uh, lockdowns and border shutdowns, very quickly we tipped from being a total heroin market into being a total fentanyl market. And Oregon mirrored all of the West Coast states. Um, in that. And then if we just dig into that notion a little bit deeper, our population is about 4 million. Washington's like seven and a half. And then California's 40 million. So just among the I-5 corridor, just these three states, we're only 8% of the population. 
we don't have the purchasing power to influence cartel decisions. But when we look at overdose mortality, comparing Oregon to Washington, California, Nevada, we see that we are exactly on par with the rest of the market. And essentially fentanyl was introduced at the same time, which caused these very predictable spikes in our overdose mortality. But there's absolutely nothing unique about Oregon. In fact, and unfortunately, the state of Washington has experienced even higher year-over-year increases in drug overdose than Oregon has. But I just want to stop right there. Harkening back to the conversation about people administering naloxone and there being a huge number of non-fatal overdoses, we rank about 25 in the country for our overdose rate. So there are half the states in the country have a higher overdose rate than we do. And I think people forget that. They hear this um, very doom and gloom narrative and they assume that we have you know, one of the highest overdose rates in the country. And that is absolutely not true. We saw some of the highest year-over-year spikes. Yes, because that's unlike the East Coast. Let's pick on Vermont for a second. When they first got fentanyl in their drug supply, it was a cut in the heroin. It was an adulterant in the heroin. But heroin was still hanging out for several years, for four or five years, as fentanyl slowly usurped heroin. Because that's not what happened here. Within the span of 12 months, we went from a total heroin to a total fentanyl market. We saw these pretty dramatic year-over-year jumps in one year, the same as what Vermont experienced over about four years. But that's really just looking at what percent of our opioid market was fentanyl. Because when it reached, you know, we reached 70% fentanyl super fast. It took Vermont about four years to reach that. We had the same increase in overdose in one year that Vermont had in about four years. Hope that made sense. It does. It does. Bear with me with the numbers here. (laughs) What do you hope Oregonians and people you know, outside of the state looking in at Measure 110, at this kind of experiment, what do you hope that they take away from this study and the research more generally? I hope that they take away that of all the various potential harms that people have suggested that Measure 110 has caused, not a single one is borne out by the data. And borne out in our data is that people are still being heavily policed, despite the fact drugs are decriminalized, that there is a doubling of overdose risk if people are incarcerated at all. And then if we look at data from across the country, there are just undeniable, indisputable harms that come along with incarceration. When you hear people in Oregon say that we need to criminalize drugs because it's a pathway to recovery, that is another part um, that was presented at the symposium that just had my jaw on the floor. You know, out of 300, more than 300,000 Oregonians that are estimated to have an illicit substance use disorder, at the most, at any given time, 
1,300 were in drug court. And from the public records request that I pulled for Multnomah County's stop court, drug possession court, the highest graduation rate was 30%. So essentially, we are talking about a pathway to recovery in any given year that for about 300 people, that's endangering 300,000 people with the risk of arrest, which is proven to be harmful. We're sometimes talking about these things as if it were an ideological debate uh, when there's science here. And we are debating things that are not debatable. These things are, it's a closed case. Science has spoken. The rate of substance use arrest in a state does not influence positively or negatively the rate of substance use in that state. So the rate of arrest is not correlated to the rate of substance use. Same goes for drug overdose. You know, West Virginia continues to have the highest drug overdose rate in the country. They very much send people to jail. No one's accusing West Virginia of being soft on crime. And so I would just really want people to look at the data, but I understand the frustration. The state of affairs is not okay. I am sick of burying my friends. So this is an all hands on deck moment. But are we going to return to the same strategies of the past just because they're familiar, even though we know they have failed? instead of truly seeking solutions that might work here. And another note, you know, the public drug use does not come from decriminalization necessarily. I traveled to Portugal twice. Public drug use was very rare there. Same with Spain, same with Uruguay. These are places I've gone to that have drug decriminalization. But here, we have such high rates of homelessness where people just don't have an alternative. And we're going to criminalize public drug use instead of giving them a better alternative. I believe very strongly that when you give people better options, they make better choices. And um, we're not so great at giving people better options. From the data, did you find any results that that point towards recommendations or actions that could be taken? I mean, obviously, we've discussed that recriminalization is not supported as something that would make a difference and and would push the needle in the right direction. But were there things in the data that you found that that could? Accessing syringe exchanges uh, increased people's likelihood of having naloxone by about 30%. So that is a tried and true intervention that we've now proved right here in Oregon uh, could reduce the overdose death. So funding and supporting uh, syringe exchanges, which is a little funny now because since fentanyl came, the amount of people who use injection drug use has gone down a lot, actually. Only 13.5% of fentanyl users reported having injected. Uh, Most people are smoking, so they're not quite as likely to access a syringe exchange And so really trying to find ways to reach that population, the people who are smoking, 
fentanyl instead of shooting it. Because, you know, over the summer, the past summer, the county was going to start handing out safe smoking kits. It's like tinfoil and straws. It's nothing you can't get at Fred Meyer. But the goal was just to bring them into the facility and connect them to services. Because we know that once people engage with harm reduction, they become about twice as likely to engage with treatment uh, within 12 months. And that aside, that's how we distribute naloxone. I mean, it was primarily through syringe exchanges because that's how we were reaching active users. But if people aren't using syringes anymore, how do we still reach those people? And so one of the recommendations uh, was to absolutely get naloxone in the hands of fentanyl users, support syringe, syringe exchanges, look for other creative ways to reach uh, people who smoke, train methamphetamine users and how to respond to overdoses, because even though they're witnessing quite a few, they're very unlikely uh, to administer naloxone. And then beyond that, I mean, extrapolate what you will out of the fact that incarceration dramatically increases the risk of overdose, that people are still being policed, that because people are still being policed, they're quite hesitant to call 911. Um, you know, we are not making political statements, but I can just show you the data and hope that you implement policy that follows that data. So there's been, and I don't know if you have the answer to this question, so if you don't, don't worry about it, but there's all of this sort of talk about, right, the overdose rate, which you kind of debunked as being being special in a way, but sort of holding Measure 110 to this level of it it was supposed to reduce overdose deaths do you recall if that was one of its selling points at the time because i don't i don't think that was said i mean i think we were like the the nation is in an overdose crisis we must act now we must stop repeating the failed strategies of the past because we're in an overdose crisis now I mean, in a perfect world, Measure 110 would have reduced overdose deaths. But because we got fentanyl at the same time, there's absolutely no way to disentangle the effects of, of fentanyl um, from what happened. The best we can hope for at this point is that our overdose rate goes up less. Because unfortunately, we know that once fentanyl hits uh, a region, the overdose rate tends to go up for seven or eight years after that. So if organs hold, holds true to that, unfortunately, we still have four years left of watching our overdose rate climb. So essentially no amount of public policy can counteract the effects of fentanyl. Right. And then combine that with the fact that Oregon's treatment and recovery services pre-110 were so extremely lackluster, to put it mildly. And, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat this. Our access to services is still abysmal. So far, Measure 110 funds have gone through one grant funding round, okay, one round of standing up behavioral health resource networks in all 36 counties in the state. One single round of grant funding cannot possibly undo decades 
of divestment and disregard. So we have some more services now, but because we were next to last in the country, we're still towards the bottom of the pack. We cannot rely on Measure 110 to fix all of our problems, especially considering that drug use is intersecting with various cascading social problems, especially housing, an affordable housing crisis. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Now is the time to act. You know, I get it. People are so frustrated. They're going to their legislators and they're saying, do something, do something about this. It's not acceptable. And the legislators are doing almost the only thing that they have under their direct control, which is to amend the criminal law. But doing something is not the same as doing something effective. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. That was Morgan Godvin with the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission of Oregon and Northeastern University speaking with me about her research on Measure 110. Godvin was part of a team that surveyed nearly 500 people who use drugs across Oregon. State lawmakers are currently considering House Bill 4002 to recriminalize possession of drugs, undoing one major facet of the voter-passed Measure 110. For KBOO News In-Depth, I'm Althea Billings.